Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. The English Game of Thrones is nearly at an end. As we saw in our last episode, William the Conqueror had spent three years since Hastings crushing one rebellion after another, culminating in the terrible harrying of the North in 1069 and 70. Through tactical brilliance and sheer brutality, he eventually found himself being served by men like Adric the Wild and all of the other surviving former rebels. He had forced the last royal Anglo-Saxon, Edgar Aetheling, to submit and had received homage from the King of Scotland. Finally, William must have sensed that the Kingdom of England was truly his. But a last flame of resistance spat into life in the form of a dispossessed English thane named Hereward. This was the Anglo-Saxon last stand. Hereward had been in Hungary at the time of the Norman invasion and may have heard that his family had been thrown off their lands, prompting his return to England in 1067. Once there, he found his widowed mother destitute and his younger brother murdered, his head mounted atop the family home's gate. Awash with grief and rage, Hereward took swift revenge. A chronicler, Geoffrey of Monmouth, tells us that Hereward crept into his former home, found his brother's killers completely drunk and laid across women's laps, and slaughtered all fifteen of them, setting up their heads where his brothers had been. He then sailed to Flanders to let the heat cool down, but by 1070 he was back. Word of Hereward's vengeance had spread and drew in more of his countrymen like moths to a flame. Hundreds joined him, eager to fight back against an increasingly brutal William. So, Hereward set up his base on a small island called Ely, in the middle of marshes and bog in the east of England. Already there were thousands of Viking Danes. The same Vikings, in fact, that had taken York with Edgar Aetheling the previous year. This was the abortive rebellion that had sparked the harrying of the North, and as we heard in our last episode, William had paid them to leave England. But instead, they just sailed south and overwintered at Ely. Now, in the summer of 1070, they were joined by the Danish king Svein himself, with thousands of reinforcements. Hereward's growing army of Anglo-Saxon dissidents and his allied horde of Vikings now used Ely to raid the countryside, kill any Normans stupid enough to hang around, and burn down their manors. If William hadn't been worried before, in the aftermath of the harrying of the North, one of the northern English earls, a man named Morcar, fled to join forces with Hereward. He brought with him scores of men as the rebel ranks began to swell. Hereward's army at Ely and its constant pillaging of the country was now a mounting problem for William. As more and more prominent English figures rushed to join Hereward, like Bishop Athelwine and Abbot Thurston, what had been a local irritation was now in danger of becoming a full-scale insurrection, supported by none other than bloodthirsty Vikings. Throughout 1070, 
the Anglo-Norse defeated a series of small-scale attempts to oust them. So, by the summer of 1071, the stage was set. William himself intervened. First, he used cash to drive a wedge between the Allied forces, paying the Danes to leave again. This time they did, sailing home to Denmark, although in a twist of fate, a storm sank most of their fleet and their riches with it. Undeterred, Herowood's rebels retreated to Ely, determined to resist and repel. Ely was a defensive dream. As a marsh-bound island, it was difficult to find and nearly impossible to reach. The swamp and sedge surrounding Ely made it a nightmare for William's favoured cavalry, and you could forget about trying to wade through in armour. Locals travelled in small boats, but these were unsuitable for a large assault, and Hereward had fortified what few causeways there were. Even worse for William, you couldn't starve them out in a siege, as the area was full of game and birds, and Hereward had herds of cattle with him. None of this, of course, discouraged William, whose first attempt to crush Hereward was to build a huge pontoon bridge to the island. But, just as the Norman heavy cavalry swarmed across it, it collapsed under the sheer weight. An account of the time said that men and horses were sucked down to the swirling waters of the mere, weighed down as they were by their armour. William's second attempt was uncharacteristic, bizarre even. He had a tall wooden tower dragged as close to Ely as possible. Placed atop the tower, was a witch, an old witch, instructed to hurl curses at Hereward's men and who reached a climactic crescendo by pulling up her dress to wave her wrinkly backside at the beleaguered English. Surely now the Anglo-Saxon surrender must have been imminent. But Hereward had a strong stomach and stronger plans. Legend has it that he had recently dressed as a potter and wandered incognito through the Norman camp gathering intelligence, so he was well prepared for the next Norman attack. When it came, timed to coincide with the witch's backside, Hereward and his men stormed out of their fastness to set fire to the new, recently built platforms, towers and wooden causeways. The fire spread rapidly through the reed beds, causing the attackers to flee in panic, chased by the English. The witch, who decided it was better to jump from the tower than burn alive, broke her neck in the fall and died instantly. Hereward and his men must have been in exultant mood. Indeed, William nearly gave up and offered Hereward peace terms. But instead, in one last throw of the dice, he offered terms instead to Earl Morcar and Abbot Thurston, the Abbot of Ely. They accepted his peace terms and left the island to fall upon the king's mercy, taking their men with them. Hereward now faced William's final onslaught alone. Abbot Thurston turned quizzling, and guided the Normans to the best land passages through the marshes. With William leading them personally, he had to exhort his men for a last effort as they scrambled over mounds of dead men and horses, the bloated corpses of the previously failed attempts to storm the island. The few remaining English 
were defending one last makeshift barrier of peat blocks. But William bombarded it relentlessly with artillery, eventually forcing a retreat. Now, using a pontoon bridge of small boats lashed together, William led a thousand Norman knights across to the high ground of Ely, where the little ongoing resistance was swiftly beaten down. It shows just how seriously William had taken the problem that he had a thousand knights with him, when the force that had been sent to conquer the whole of northern England in 1069 contained just 500. While many of the English defenders had simply escaped beforehand in small boats, most of the leaders of the Ely Rebellion, unfortunate enough to be captured, had their eyes put out and hands chopped off. Still more were imprisoned for life. Hereward's fate, though, remains a mystery. Some say he slipped away in the fens surrounding Ely and fled abroad. Other sources say he was pardoned by William, who admired his bravery and ingenuity. These sources have a man named Hereward serving William in France, leading a band of Englishmen in his army. There is also a Hereward who held lands in England at the time of William's death in 1087. Whatever the truth, Hereward's remarkable last stand at Ely marked both the high watermark and the final end of any real English resistance to Norman rule. There were other rebellions, such as the revolt of the Five Earls in 1075, but this was largely Norman earls rebelling against their king, rather than the English rising up against invaders. In a popularity contest between Ely and Hastings, Hastings wins hands down. But it was Ely that truly marked the end of Anglo-Saxon England. By the time of the Doomsday Book in 1086, just 20 years after Hastings, and 15 after Ely, around 90% of land that had been held by English thanes in 1066 had now been seized by William and his followers. There was also a marked transformation from resistance to practical and cultural collaboration. One of the best examples can be seen in what people called their children. By the 1080s, even within pure English families, names like Alfred, Ethelred, and Edward were out, and Geoffrey, Richard, and especially William were most definitely in. The Normans were here to stay, and while England quickly regained its own sense of itself as a distinct kingdom in the decades and centuries to come, the Normans ultimately reshaped the realm in their own image. As we saw in episode 3, they also went on to become major European power brokers, controlling Sicily, Malta and large parts of southern Italy. While the Viking Age is deemed to have ended at Stamford Bridge, many Vikings continued to settle and powerfully influence events across Europe, Russia and the Byzantine Empire where they formed the famous Varangian Guard, the personal bodyguard of the Emperor. Harold Godwinson's sons were never heard of again after their defeat in 1069, although one of his daughters, Gunhilda, married a Norman nobleman in what appears to be a happy marriage. Another daughter, the 13-year-old Githa, fled to her uncle King Svein of Denmark, who had survived the storm which wrecked his fleet after leaving Ely. Githa later married a prince of the Rus, 
a certain Vladimir Monomak, and so was the ancestress to the future Tsars of Russia. Had Harold won at Hastings, the future of Russia would have been very different. The English Game of Thrones had ended, with William now wearing the crown. But in all these ways, the victors and vanquished alike continued to play in the Game of Thrones of other European powers for centuries to come. This titanic game and each of its players sent ripples throughout history, geography, politics, law, culture and language. Ripples that we still feel today. This has been Bite Size Battle's debut podcast, The English Game of Thrones, and I wanted to say thank you all for listening. I've already been getting some great reviews. It makes it all so worthwhile. It might surprise you to know that there's no team here helping me put these podcasts together. It's just me. I research, write the stories, voice the podcasts, edit them and promote them through social media. I love it and it makes me glad when you do too. If you don't though, please write me a direct message on Instagram or Facebook and let me know how I can improve for future series. I am all ears. If you do love it, please leave a good review on your favourite podcast channel, follow and subscribe on there too, and follow us on Instagram at Bite Size Battles. And spread the word to any fellow history lovers too. Thank you again. I really appreciate it.